Okie dokie, folks. Welcome to the Roots Report podcast, presented by Motif Magazine and sponsored by The Parlor, R1 Entertainment, The Trinity Brewhouse Beer Garden, Graysale Brewing of Rhode Island, and SE Microphones. I am your host, John Fusick. Today we have Bill Cunningham of the band The Box Tops. They will be at the stadium in Woonsocket along with the Buckinghams on April 15th. Bill? It is. Hi, this, this is, is John. John Fusick. Yeah, how are you doing? All right, how are you? Pretty good. Are you uh, on the road? Are you at home? I'm at home. Where is home these days? Fairfax, Virginia. Oh, okay. Northern Virginia, right, right in D.C. You had started working in D.C. after the box tops, weren't, didn't you? Yep, I did. I worked uh, here for a number of years. Weren't you in um, a band, the White House Band or something? I was in the White House Band, and uh, later I was interviewing for, I got an MBA after, you know, while I was here, actually. Changed fields, and I started interviewing in New York, and and I almost went to uh, Manhattan to work for some of the commercial banks there, but um, I ended up uh, getting a job here. They offered me a job here, and I thought, oh, I'll stay for a year more because I already had an apartment here at that time. Then they started sending me around the world and doing all kind of stuff and giving me freedom because they didn't know what the heck I was doing, but they liked what I was doing, so I just kept doing things. What was uh, what was I, this job? Well, uh, I worked uh, uh, for the International Trade Commission. Oh, okay. Uh, and it was dealing with uh, international trade and just all kind of different things. So it was a very non-musical career. Totally non-musical. Although when I first got the job, uh, one of the things you you know they had to do was have analysts that covered all the products and the tariff schedule of the United States, which means any, anything basically that's manufactured. And my roommate at the time, my office mate, not my roommate, but my office mate, got musical instruments, and he didn't know anything about musical instruments. And I got nuclear waste byproduct and ophthalmic lenses and all this other kind of medical all the medical devices in the hospital and everything else and i opened up the schedules and it was set like an orchestra and i also have a degree uh and and uh, um music right so i recognized all of his stuff i knew all the manufacturers i knew the quality i knew you know where they came from all that kind of stuff he knew nothing <laughs> and he'd come on board two weeks before me but the government refused to switch me really with him and he could care less, you know, whether, because he didn't know anything about anything. So I, I had to get into uh, nuclear waste byproduct and things called Maquiladora and all, all, all kind of different things. So I, I learned a lot about medical devices and, <laughs> and nuclear waste byproduct and stuff that I don't really need. And that, so that's the government. You were still relatively young at that point because you were in the box stops when you were like, what, 16, 17 years old? Seven, 17, yeah. Alex and I were born the same year. I was born at the very first of the year, uh, and he was born at the very tail end of the year. So, yeah, you were all pretty young. I mean, it was a pretty young band yeah. back then. Yeah, I had just turned 17. Now, how did you wind up getting into an, a band and starting everything at that age? I mean, at that really young age. Well, I mean, it, I guess at that, that time, it wasn't all that unheard of, because a lot of bands were young back then. Yeah. Um, well, my family was in the music business anyway. My dad worked uh, for uh, Sam Phillips at Sun Records for, for about the first 10 years, from 1953 or 54 through about 61. 
62, I guess, or maybe 63. Uh, and so he was around for all that, you know, the Elvis, uh, uh, Jerry Lee, uh, Carl Perkins, uh, Johnny Cash, all, all that stuff. Did you meet and Elvis? I, thought, I, I did meet Elvis. You must have been a kid, though. You were young when you met him, right? I was I was a little squirt. Um, actually, well, it's a, it's a funny story, but um, when Scotty Moore didn't want to tour... I don't know how this interview is going, but that's fine. When, it's it's fine. When, <laughs> when when Scotty Moore, you know, Scotty Moore was handling the road stuff, you know, and the tour stuff for Elvis in the early days, back mm-hmm. when they were still doing, uh, you know, a lot of the the mid south kind of stuff. And uh, Scotty didn't want to do that anymore, so um, Sam sent Elvis over to our house to talk my dad into managing Tom Parker, right? And uh, my dad was a singer, and he was a son artist, uh, as well as working with Sam on producing all the records. I mean, I think my dad was working with a a place called Plastic Products and a bunch of people to actually do the pressings for all the recordings and stuff, uh, among other things. And uh, so anyway, Elvis came over and my mom, you know, shushed my brother and me out of the house. My brother was eight (laughs) years older than me. And so we went out and, you know, we played in the yard or did something, you know, like that. And then so Elvis came out. My dad turned him down. uh, And so Elvis had one of his Cadillacs, you know, one of the, I think, I think it was the pink, one of the pink Cadillacs or something. And he got in it and it wouldn't crank. So my brother and Elvis and me and one other kid from the neighborhood we were playing with, you know, pushed the car out. You know, he put it in reverse and pushed the car out of the driveway. Elvis kept the door open and, and was walking, you know, on the driver's side, steered it so it would turn, you know, in the street. And then uh, we all pushed the car. Elvis jumped in, popped the clutch, and, and off he went. You know, so that was... <laughs> That was one of my experiences with Elvis. Oh, so you had several. That's that's cool. But uh, and actually, my dad played percussion on a couple of the early Elvis records, even before DJ Fontana. Oh, cool! Involved. He played on "Just Because." Um, If you look that up, you'll you'll hear uh, brushes on a snare drum. That's Mm -hmm. my dad. Oh, that's cool. Well, you got a lot of history in there. Yeah, so anyway, yeah, well, that's right. I'm supposed to tell you how I got in a band, right? <laughs> that's so, okay. It's all, so all the stories make interesting bringing, listening. Bringing it back. Uh, so my dad was in the music business. My brother was a session guitarist and in the music business and, you know, all around and playing and stuff. Um, and uh, and we had people all around us. Duck Dunn and Steve Cropper went to my brother's high school and were classmates of his and stuff. So I used to see them. Um, uh, and, you know, everyone would play in, in the living room and rehearse and all this kind of stuff. And I'd go to the sock hops and watch that. So it was sort of instinctive that, you know, I would play. So, uh, I, you know, I, I started playing even before the Beatles came out. Actually, my brother was stationed in England and came back and he said, um, oh, let's do uh, the slow down. I said, what's slow down? He said, oh, it's one of the Beatles' new tunes. I said, who are the Beatles? He said, who are you listening to? I said, the Beach Boys, you know, 409 and, and, you know, this kind of stuff. He said, oh, you know, here. And so we started playing that and stuff. So I was aware of the Beatles early on. I went out looking for albums and singles, and I found them before they were announced here. I got the original VJ album and a bunch of other stuff that was just like in the stacks nobody knew about. (laughs) 
uh, and I still have those. Oh, yeah. cool. Those must be so worth something then. They are worth a, a pretty penny now. I'm, I'm sure. sure. So, but, uh, but so anyway, I was in a band and then I got in a band, um, locally, uh, you know, with some friends of mine in middle school, we won a talent show. And then I, then that band broke up and then I, then I got in another band with a guy named, I don't know if you know anything about Big Star. Yes. But, um, so Chris Bell w- was creating his first band, uh, and I hooked up with Chris, and I played in that band and stuff. And so uh, Chris and I played together for a, a couple of years, and um, and we're doing things. And I used to see Alex all the time again. I, I knew Alex from elementary school because he lived in the neighborhood at that time same neighborhood he later moved to what they call midtown memphis um but um so I, I was sort of just in this connection of people playing um and then alex later called me and took me away from chris uh to play over in the devilles which became the box tops and that was the rest of it you probably know well I've, yeah i've read but how how did um what was it that caused you to get uh, a record deal and to get popular i mean you i mean well, getting in a band were, is you know you got in a band yeah, and you they, started playing but there must have been some catalyst the for them had, yeah the devils already had a manager who was a radio dj oh, okay in Memphis on one of the stations and he was hooked in with the the some of those newer uh recording studio in town and um and they had recorded the devils had recorded uh like two or th- maybe three singles before but they were just local or regional successes you know they, but they got jobs and stuff out of it so the when i joined it was still the devilles but this was sort of like another devilles project mm-hmm. right and then it then it, then when we went to release it you know we looked at it nationally because uh, bell records at that time wanted it they had come down to the studio heard it and bought it uh, and then when we looked nationally we found out that there was like two other groups named the devilles <laughs> uh, you know and so we had to change names and we just came up with someone came up with the box tops and i just cringed at it <laughs> horrible sounding name it was really embarrassing but i thought well you know what do i care it's not going to do anything but we'll get some skating rink gigs you know and then of course it took off and once it became number one it being the letter then i felt the name was not so bad right it started getting a lot of press i got used to seeing it i got used to calling ourselves that so were you guys writing any of your own music at that point no uh, I, Alex began writing during the box tops, I would say about 1968. I think he just saw people making money off the publishing and stuff. And Alex was sort of a, a, a very interesting person. Uh, he was really bright and he was really attentive uh, and you know just could see what all was happening so uh, he started writing some stuff and then dan penn our producer at that time in 68 67 68 really didn't you know give alex much help putting his stuff together and so we would throw some things together and then dan would i you know i'm not quite sure why maybe to appease alex maybe to maybe because of the virtue of the songs or whatever he would throw them either on an album or on the b-side of a single release and and so that made 
some money for Alex, and I think that encouraged him to continue writing. You didn't stay with the band. You only stayed with the band a couple of years to begin with, for about two yeah, or three I, years. I, I stayed uh, about two and a half years, uh, and then in 1969, August, I quit the group uh, on the 30, whatever it is, 31st or 30th of August, and because I wanted to get a degree in classical music. I, I had, on the few days I had off, I sometimes would uh, meet up with some old school friends of mine who were studying classical music at the university locally. Their techniques were getting really good, and their knowledge and ability to describe arrangements or what's happening uh, was was something that I, I would was really amazed at uh, and I wanted that and with us the box top if if we didn't have a, a single out that was doing well we never got to add anything new to our set you know we and the more famous you got the shorter your shows became really yeah <laughs> and it was like okay so we're playing with all kind of people and stuff but we're playing the same damn songs every night right you know and it's like well, I'm not getting anywhere. I'm not developed. I mean, it was it was fun uh, until it wore me out, you know, even as a teenager. Uh, and I think everybody, you know, the tension was getting strong in the group. But just because the, they were wearing, you know, the management was putting us on the road constantly and just wearing us out. But I, I basically saw my friends progressing musically. And I thought, oh, I want that. Mm-hmm. So I quit when uh, a song called Soul Deep. And we already had recorded everything that ever was released. Everything was already in the can. Uh, they never went back in after I, I got out uh, to record anything. Well, that version of the band. There's another version that continued. Well, yeah. There, you know, I think there was a version that Tommy Codville, who was one of our co-producers and producers, after Dan left, uh, Chip Smoman produced us, and Tommy would produce us as well. You know, I worked with Tommy on some things yeah i don't know what they did afterwards i I suspect our management just tried to continue the name or did something you know and i i don't what but i don't treat those as real records right not not our real records no no that it because it was there was nobody from the original band in the in this in these lineups just trying to make money it's almost like a fake group right uh, you know so i quit when Soldi was climbing the charts, and it was, um, and it got in the top twenty, I quit probably when it was about twenty-seven in the charts or twenty-five, and it was going up, you know, with a bullet in, in the national rankings and Billboard or whatever. But so I quit while we we were sort of, I mean, we were still on top, and so I never saw a downward spiral. Oh, that's a good thing. At least yeah, you, you know, you left on top, and you went off to continue your music career, which you, I give you credit for getting a master's in music because I, yeah. I went to school for a music major and lasted about two months. <laughs> yeah, well, and I got a performance degrees, you know, so mine are not education degrees; mine are actual performance degrees. Yeah, that's and what I, I was doing in, too. Yeah, and I played in the Memphis Symphony, and I played in all kind of ballet companies and opera companies and all this other kind of stuff. And that's a far cry from the rock scene. Yeah, but I also played on a you know different sessions around town. I was on Isaac Hayes' Shaft. Really? I was going to ask you about that because I I saw Isaac Hayes listed and, you know, I saw you've played with people like Itzhak Perlman and Isaac Hayes and I was like, how can you be more polar opposite? And I was going to ask you if you ever got to play on Shaft Live, but I didn't know that was you on the recording. It's me on the recording. That's very cool. I played the bass and string section. (laughs) We were were sort of like the B team 
our uh, the teachers at the university were the A team. They actually played on our stuff. Wow! But uh, but you know it got so busy in town that we started filling in and doing all the all the leftover stuff. You know, so I ended up on that. Uh, you know, playing the you know the da da dum da dum da dum. Wow, that's very cool. Yeah, Isaac used to call me to play with him live. He would play in the Mid South because he knew I, you know, I was in the symphony and I was on the record, and I, you know, he just knew that I had a certain radius around Memphis that I would go out to play if I needed to. Hmm. I, I did that with other symphonies. I played in the Little Rock Symphony. I played. Uh, the Nashville Symphony I play not regularly but I would sub or do different kind of things uh, and Jackson Mississippi Symphony I think and Tupelo and some other kind of things but so he would call me and I would do some live shows with him every once in a while not not a lot but you know if he were in the Mid-South he would tend to give me a call now you moved to Germany for a while I did and you yeah. and you did something and now either you just played a show with Klaus or played with him or yeah, well, uh, Klaus Foreman, yeah, I, uh, I'd never met him, but uh, we were doing a, tele- a big television special in Hamburg, and Klaus now lives in Munich, but, but he was in Hamburg because it was getting ready for, like, I don't know what it was, uh, one of those decade anniversaries of, of the uh, Reaper Bond and the Beatles and the Indra Club or the Star Club or whatever, you know, and so he was doing a lot of stuff. For that, I think he and Ringo were going to do some stuff. I don't know if Paul was involved in that or not, but uh, that show was put together as a 68 special, for, and they called us uh, and flew us over, um, and they had uh, Donovan on there, they had... Uh, uh, Rowan Atkinson because mm-hmm. he had a new Mr. Bean film, right. but you know, they had him. Uh, they had uh, Peter Fonda before, just a year before he passed away was was on on that show, uh, and Klaus was on that show. You know, talking about the times or whatever. You know, and uh, but I I remember walking into the sort of the, the green room area, the huge room, uh, and I recognized him. I thought. And and I, I said, are you Klaus, Klaus Foreman? He said, yes. And I said, well, I'm Bill Cunningham with the box tops, you know, out of Memphis, Tennessee. The first thing Klaus asked me is, do you know Don Nix? And I do know Don Nix, right? And I said, sure, I know Don Nix. He went to our high school. you know. And then we started talking about Don, and then we got into a bunch of other conversations. Oh, and, he, and he had just seen us play. And he said, did you guys really play? play that live and i said said yeah (laughs) what are you talking about (laughs) so i guess he thought it was good and you know he was amazed it was that good or whatever yeah i've seen quite a few interviews with him on television he's uh i think he didn't he do the the uh the drawing of the revolver cover for the beatles he did and he was wearing a t-shirt for this anniversary thing that he drew that was sort of like that uh and my wife was with me and she said "Ooh, i really like that and he literally took the t-shirt off and gave it to her wow he had a shirt on <laughs> underneath it or something but he gave her that, and I still have it. Or wow, we still have that's it. very cool. That's a, yeah. It's you get a, make a lot of cool connections in music when you get to travel and stuff. Um, yeah, 
Well, you know, I've been fortunate. That's the only thing I can say. I don't, I don't know how it all worked out, but uh, it just seemed sort of like a progression to me. Right. Although I've taken these little side channels that expanded my background, so right. business, you know. So now I can handle the business stuff, you know, that I couldn't have when I was a kid. I just didn't know enough. Are you handling the business end of of the box tops now? Because weren't you the catalyst that got them together again to reform the way? I mean, unfortunately, three of the members are dead, aren't they? Yes. That's uh, yeah. Alex, Danny, and uh, John? Yeah. What happened in 1996, I just something was happening and I was listening to, uh, you know, headset and I was listening to some, you know, music that was probably fairly current. And I just thought, Oh gee, I haven't been in a studio in ages. Right. I haven't touched an instrument in 17 years. Really? Yeah. Wow. And so, so I call up Alex, uh, and he answers the phone and said, you know, I'm just curious what it's like to be in a studio. It's got to be so different from when we were in there in the 60s. Uh, and he said, yeah, you know, it's, it's you know, a, a lot different. Uh, and uh, I said, well, would you go in a studio and you and I can do something together and, and just give me a chance to see, experience it? He said, sure. And he, sa- he said, who should we get to come in? And I said, I don't know, I guess all original guys and so he said okay and then i started calling all original guys and each one of them said the same thing sure i'll do it but alex won't (laughs) and i said i started with alex he's on board so we all went into a studio in memphis and uh and recorded an album and i had in the sort of the agreement that we all signed is that if any one of us didn't like what we had done we would literally take the tapes, and we were still, in, in 96, still recording the tape. Uh, we'd take the tapes to the parking lot and burn it. Uh, and they all liked that, you know. But it, as it turned out, everybody liked what we did, so we didn't burn it. We actually put it out. Oh, that's good. Yeah. So, and now, you know, since their passings, you've obviously replaced them with other people, and it's only, yeah. it's uh, just two of you now. Yeah. Uh, when Alex died in, in 2010, uh, it really wrecked me, and I didn't want to do anything, and I stopped playing again for another five years. Wow. Uh, and then I got a call for uh, a tribute album to Dan Penn that they were doing with a bunch of guys from Muscle Shoals and, and people, but they were doing it in Nashville. So they asked me to play. I think David Hood was going to play bass or something like that, and... They said, oh, we can, you know, move you onto bass or whatever. I said, no, 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 let David Hood play bass. I'll play keyboards or something. I think Spooner or somebody was playing piano, and so I just played organ. But uh, I flew down there, and Gary Kelly, our guitar player, original guitar player, lives in Nashville, and I had lunch with him. He, he said, oh, you know, what are you doing? I said, I've got this studio thing. Uh, they're doing a tribute album. For Dan, a bunch of Muscle Shoals people, they called me and, and he said, oh, I'd like to come. So I said, well, come on. I'm sure they'd like to see you. And he drove his car. I drove my rental car to the studio. Uh, and he had guitars in the back and they invited him to play. And we started doing, uh, you know, like the first number. And Gary and I, even though I was on keyboards, which I played some a lot probably in the in the box tops as well. As soon as I heard the sound of how we 
blend together, I recognized, you know, that it was actually a good thing. And I thought, oh, maybe there's something more than just Alex's voices to what we were doing. So I said, okay, you know, and, and people had been asking to get back together or do something. I don't know why. So uh, I basically said, well, I'm not getting a replacement for Alex. You know, they can either hear our voices singing the songs or they can hear a fake group and we just won't go. And, and so Gary agreed. We've taken over singing the parts ourselves. Well, you were singing back on, back up at that point anyway in the we band. Were, yeah, we were on the recordings, and you can recognize the voice. You don't realize it, but you can recognize the voices when you hear them. Uh, so, it, you know, there's a certain sound there still, even with our voices, that uh, resonates. Well, there's always a chemistry between musicians that cannot be replicated by other people, no matter how hard you try. Yeah. Um, you know, I've experienced that personally, just playing with other people. It's like that, and it's just, you know, there's just little nuances that people and they they get in a groove with each other and you know it's just it's from playing together and knowing each other and just having that chemistry that makes it work yeah 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 it, it naturally happens so. and alex was just such a damn good singer that we didn't need to do anything more than just a couple of lines here and there or harmonize with him sometimes right so you you your friend chris bell was part of big star as well as alex did you have any um dealings did you play at all with big star or well i di i didn't play with big star although alex dragged me up on stage once and insisted i stay on stage <laughs> but i sat right behind jody uh at a big festival but no i didn't really uh i did play upright bass and i did do the arrangement for a song that Chris did on his album. Actually, a couple of songs Chris on Chris's album. But um, one of them is called You and Your Sister. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you know that song or not. No. But, uh, but there's a string arrangement and there's, there's a bass. So it's really just me and Chris on the first verse. Alex joins in on the second verse with a backing vocal. Uh, and then in the middle section, I bring in a cello and then bring in a string quartet for the for the rest of the song but that's one that actually has become so popular uh that it's 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 begun to show up as one of the big star catalog songs so you know i i i didn't think of it as being big star because i thought of it as being chris <laughs> <laughs> but this was in you know this was after he had left big star oh, okay and i remember being uh, chris engineered it uh and i remember going to the uh the the boardroom and and him playing it back you know what we were doing and he said oh you know alex is going to sing he told me he's going to sing on this and i didn't know anything about big star at that time and and uh, they had already had number one record and the second actually the second album i i knew about because someone at arden had given it to me but i only saw jody and 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 uh, andy and, and alex on that so i never knew chris was even in big star and and it was like uh, okay you know because i knew we all knew one another as kids i said oh that's nice uh <laughs> But I didn't realize this was a you know a reference to what he had done already with him and on the first album. I had I watched a Big Star documentary at once, and it just seemed like it seemed like the from what I garnered from the documentary, it seemed like the Box Tops and Big Star both kind of the bands kind of got screwed in a way, is what the documentary. Um, alluded to is that you know it seemed like Alex had problems with management and such. That's yeah. That well, I mean, things are 
always more complicated than they seem. With the box tops, I would say we got screwed, uh, but we sold so many records that even the people screwing us couldn't take all the money. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's just weird. I mean, so many groups have success, but all their money goes back into paying for the studio, paying for this, paying for that, all that kind of stuff. But we were just so successful uh, at the time. And the songs have held up. You know, some of the songs have held up being top 20s. that They still get airplay and we still get royalties. You know, performance royalties and that kind of stuff. So, but we just literally made so much money for everybody that um, that you know we we walked away. I mean, I paid for my education with with my money. That's a good thing, especially these days with the college, the debt that people go into college for college now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And Big Star, I you know, they never were successful, even though some of their stuff was really quite interesting and quite good. Mm. But I I don't know they were they were out of touch and away with what was happening. Um, And actually, their stuff in a good way was out of touch with what was happening. (laughs) At the time, but you know when they tried to do the release, they um, because of maybe the critic party that John Fry threw uh, in Memphis uh, and all the you know the writers, Rolling Stone writers and different writers from around uh, came in, and Big Star played that, and there was something that happened that somehow or another that and some other bands that became famous. Cl- you know, you know, found their material and sort of made them into this really big cult band. Now, it's like the cool thing is to know about Big Star uh, in order to have their things, or even Chris's album. And it's just very different from what I experienced in the box tops. Our stuff was all like top forty and you know just out there. Oh, and then you had that song by the replacements, Alex Chilton. That yeah, well, kinda... that's a yeah, that's a personalization of Alex. And I, you know, I don't know what what he was writing. Whether he was writing about Big Star or was just writing about Alex, you know, because of Alex's uh, trio that he used to go around with, or, or you know, whatever. But mm. but it's funny because Big Star people, I think it, 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 at the time they became cool. Let's say I'm only guessing that sometime in the early to mid '90s they resented the box tops somehow or another hmm. but what they didn't understand is that we were all friends right it's <laughs> like so everybody knew one another i didn't know jody but i knew andy i knew i knew chris obviously we were best friends for a long time and and uh, i knew alex we'd been good friends for for ages you know so it's like uh, there wasn't any real jealousy or fighting and i mean we weren't even playing you know, at the time <laughs> they were doing it. i was playing you know, symphonies and doing recordings around town for all kind of different things. You did the Happy Together tour, didn't you? Yes. Did you only do that once, or are you still doing it? Uh, no, we did it once. Uh, and I think it was in 2017. Uh, and uh, so we did that. That was the last year that uh, Howard Kalen went out, uh, you know, one of the turtles. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, then he's, uh, I think, Ron Dante, uh, the guy who did Sugar Sugar and did a lot of other stuff. I mean, he used to produce Barry Manilow and a bunch of other artists, as well as he was in another group early on in, the, I think, in the late 50s or early 60s called the Cufflinks. He sang, sang in that group, too. Uh, he started doing Howard's part with Mark Volman, who was, uh, who was the other major turtles guy but uh but we were on it with uh, mark and howard 
uh, and we were riding the same bus as Mark and Howard. So every night I would stay up and I would talk to Howard about things. And, you know, after about uh, the first week, I realized Howard doesn't go to sleep until sunrise. So it's like, <laughs> I mean, I had great conversations with him about, you know, audiences, about Zappa, about Steve Seals and, and about fights they had and Laurel Canyon and just all kind of stuff. So it was it was very interesting. But I, I just didn't realize that, he, you know, he never went to sleep until the sun rose. <laughs> so, then, you know, the last the last, you know, uh, month or two or last couple of months of the tour, it was a three month tour. Uh, I, I would get on the bus and I would, you know, talk or, or do whatever, you know, to wind down. But then I would just get my bunk and listen to music and go to sleep. <laughs> so now you're you're out with the Buckinghams. Yeah, we're we're out uh, with the, uh, you know, sometimes. Well, we're out alone and we're also with a with a, a package that's uh, typically the Buckinghams, the grassroots, and us. Sometimes it's one of us is missing from that, but it's called American Pop. Okay. And uh, But that's like among the three of us, that's 28 top 40 singles. Hmm. So there's a lot of good music in there. Yeah, because uh, you're going to be at the uh, the Stadium Theater in Woonsocket on the 15th of April with the Buckinghams. and Yeah. Now, these shows, um, who well, goes first, doing, or do you alternate, doing- or... Oh, no. well, usually we open, for I think, because uh, we had a hiatus in our our uh, career, whereas the rest of them had sort of continued on. And so maybe out of respect or out of, a, you know, some kind of a whatever. I mean, we don't care where we where we are in the show, but we typically open. And uh, I think the grassroots typically close if there. But if there's two of us, you know, it's probably uh probably us and then the Buckinghams, something like that. Can you elaborate a little bit more? I know the Buckinghams had kind of a drag. Yeah. Well, they had uh, they had uh, a number of they had Mercy Mercy. I don't it's a cover, but it was actually a very good cover of that song. Uh and Don't You Care was another one that they had and then they had Susan. Mm-hmm. So, I don't think they had any more hit songs than we, maybe even less, and that we we had I think seven top 40 songs in the States and eight, if you count Canada, we had a, another song that was on the top, top 20 or so there. How have the shows been but received lately? I mean, you've been getting good audiences and yeah, yeah. It's, uh, I mean, uh, you know, everybody tends to love the show. It's a lot of fun. Uh, you know, we, you know, if we're doing it together, we of course play a little bit short of shows but if we're playing alone, then we play longer shows and we have a little bit more time to develop rapport with the audiences and stuff. But we can do it fast, too. You know, it's, it's, it's fun. And we're playing uh, like three places in New England. Uh, we're playing a place called the Music Room on the 14th. Oh, that's on the Cape. Yeah, out there with uh, Yarmouth. Uh, and we're playing uh, Old Saybrook. Uh, the Cape Theater, which okay. is a beautiful theater, we played. We've played that before, and it's it's lovely there. Yes, the stadium is very nice theater. I think it's about a thousand seats, and cool. um, very nice theater. It's uh, been around for a while. I, I actually was just there the other night. I saw Charles Palmer Terry there, uh, a Bronx Tale. Yeah. 
cool. Yeah, I, I haven't, uh, I don't recall being, you know, playing that. Um, and uh, I don't think we've actually played Rhode Island. Uh, we've driven by Rhode Island as we leave Boston to get to, let's say, Old Saybrook or something like that. You know, that's but, that's usually the case with everything. Everybody drives through Rhode Island. <laughs> It's, yeah, it's if like, you blink, oh. you miss it. I mean, in the old days, we certainly played there, but I, I just don't remember exactly where. Well, um, how long do you think the show lasts? I mean, is what it's like two hour, two set show, one set from you, one set from the Buckinghams, maybe about yeah, two hours. I, I think if it's two of us, it's probably about two hours. It's probably going to be about an hour us and an hour Buckingham, so it'll be half half. It doesn't really matter what the order is, but the but the show will run about two hours with a with an intermission in between. Now, do you think you're getting um, any new audience members, or is this more of a nostalgic tour for for people, or are you, you know, getting any it, younger people? It depends. We pl- we've been playing uh, a number of uh, clubs, and we've had younger people showing up at some of our uh, performances and things, and they've been sort of impressed, I guess. I don't know what their experience is and stuff, but and I jokingly say uh, because our music's and soundtracks and stuff like that, you know, Quentin Tarantino used Choo Choo Train, which was one of ours, and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Mm. Uh, and then uh, we were in the Minions movie. So, <laughs> you know, maybe our our uh, hot age group now is probably about, you know, 12 years old. You know? <laughs> well, uh, you know, and the other the other factor is, is that you folks are playing good music. That's That yeah, could be another and we, factor. And, we, and, and we, you're actually yeah. playing it. Yeah, we really play. You know, because we grew up. I mean, hell, we had Booker T and the MGs there. You know, was who we would go see at you know clubs around town or whatever. Or I mean, just great people playing. And and so Memphis was always full of that. And Gary and I, born and raised, all the original box tops were born born and raised in Memphis. And technically, and this is how you can distort with statistics, but but technically, we were the first Memphis group to record in Memphis to have a number one hit. Interesting. So that even includes, I mean, you know, if you look at Elvis, he was Tupelo, but he moved to Memphis and he, you know, and this kind of stuff. But he did, but the songs he did in Memphis, I don't know that any of them came, became number one nationally. He, he certainly got on the map, but, you know, it wasn't until he moved to RCA and did Heartbreak Hotel and, and uh, Hound Dog and some other stuff that he actually got to number one. You and your brother have, your brother was in a band or recorded with yeah, somebody and you had was, hits at the same time on the charts? Yeah, he was, uh, he was in a, a group called the Ombres and he wrote a song, uh, sang it and played keyboards on it. Uh, it's called Let It All Hang Out. You can look that one up. It was, uh, I think I remember that one he wrote yeah it's a it's a it's a funny kind of quirky song but it it was in the same column as the letter in 1967 uh so we were like number one and i don't know what they were you can look it up but it's you know they were somewhere and getting close to 20 or something like that in billboard or Cashbox. i don't remember which but but they were definitely in the charts uh and he wrote it because he listened to bob dylan's subterranean homesick blues hmm. and said well you know that's a lot of crap you know, it's just being thrown out. I could do something like that. So he just wrote all these ridiculous lyrics and stuff. But that's what that was. It was really just a, a mockery of Bob Dylan's song at the time. <laughs> that's an interesting, interesting bit of trivia there. I like that. If you listen to it, then you hear it. <laughs> you won't notice it. <laughs> 
All right. Well, I need to wrap this one up. I've got to head into another interview. Um, okay. Appreciate you taking the time. And it's really been a pleasure. I'd love to talk to you longer because you've got a lot of interesting stories because it's, I, I like hearing stories from that time and such. I mean, I was only a kid in the sixties, but I still remember a lot of it. And I like listening to musicians and stuff talk because I'm a musician myself. So I yeah. appreciate the stories I and mean, I hope you have a great show at the, uh, the stadium. Thanks, John. I thank you very much. Bye now. Bye-bye. Okie dokie. Thanks to Bill Cunningham for being part of this episode of the Roots Report podcast. The Box Tops and the Buckinghams will be at the stadium in Woonsocket on April 15th. The Roots Report podcast is presented by Motif Magazine and sponsored by The Parlor, R1 Entertainment, the Trinity Brewhouse Beer Garden, Graysale Brewing of Rhode Island, and SE Microphones. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.